what happens is you have a woman who takes a glucose tolerance test and, and does not get a passing score, right? So she has so-called has gestational diabetes. That test typically involves drinking somewhere from 50 to 75 to 100 grams of glucose in a sitting and then testing your blood sugar afterwards. And you look at the sample meal plan that you may be given or your recommended carb levels. And that often equates to eating about 50 grams or sometimes more of carbohydrates per meal at a single sitting. And then you might be thinking, well, that's a little bit odd because I just took this test where I took 50 or more grams of carbohydrates and my blood sugar was too high and now my intervention is to consistently eat 50 or more grams of carbohydrates every time I eat um, and you would be right to use toddler logic to think that that doesn't make sense because it doesn't make sense Hi, I'm Claire Goodwin and this is the PCOS Nutritionist Podcast. I have PCOS too and I know how hard it can be to get the help you need. So I bring together my expertise as a registered nutritionist and exercise scientist together with other experts I trust and people with real life lived experience of PCOS to help you get the information you need to make a real difference to your symptoms. So today I'm back talking with the wonderful Lily Nichols. Uh, who is the author of Real Food Pregnancy and Real Food Gestational Diabetes. She is a registered dietitian nutritionist and um, she worked a lot with patients with gestational diabetes. And during that time, she was like, hmm, these guidelines really don't make sense for these patients. Actually, what we're telling them to eat is making them worse. So she was motivated by that to go back and look at the research and try and understand why the recommendations were being made and instead what would be a better outcome for gestational diabetes patients instead. And really interestingly, her book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, has been used to update the gestational diabetes guidelines in the Czech Republic, which I thought was very cool. So today we're going to be going through um, just helping to understand what is gestational diabetes, why you can test positive for gestational diabetes during pregnancy, and I love the term she uses about that, testing positive as, to, as opposed to developing it, because as you'll hear in this podcast, um, if you're going to test positive for gestational diabetes in pregnancy, uh, you're it's because you have had some underlying insulin resistance that hasn't been picked up previously. So it's not something that suddenly you just develop this. And we'll go through does how much does the first trimester go into um, developing gestational diabetes, especially if like all you can eat is McDonald's fries and white bread. Um, and also then what are some of the ways that you can, if you do develop gestational diabetes or test positive for gestational diabetes, what are some of the ways that you can manage your blood glucose through food um, and also get really good nutrient levels as well? So that's what we're going through today. Hope you enjoy. Well, thank you so much for joining us again, Lily. It's been, well, it was a pleasure talking to you about vitamin A and I can't wait to talk about gestational diabetes because it is such a hot topic in PCOS. And um, yeah, it's really, really good to have you back. Yes, thanks for having me. So gestational diabetes, let's start with this. What is it? Just as a general, like really broad opener, what is gestational diabetes? Why, why do we develop diabetes in pregnancy? Yeah, so gestational diabetes is essentially elevated blood sugar during pregnancy, which can, and can happen for a variety of reasons. There's 
different theories as to why it happens. And also not every case is the same. So traditionally we thought of gestational diabetes as something that develops due to uh, changes in placental hormones that affect how our body uses insulin. And just based on the, you know, increased weight gain during pregnancy, we know that in pregnancy, you just become a little more insulin resistant and some people, you know, can't manage their blood sugar at quite the same level. Um, now we have a little more information on, you know, understanding how and why it develops, um, particularly by uh, screening for it earlier in pregnancy, as some practitioners do with a test called a hemoglobin A1C, which checks your average blood sugar over the last few months. So if you check that in the first trimester and it's elevated, women who are in the pre-diabetic range for their A1C have like a 98% chance of so-called developing or testing positive for gestational diabetes uh, when they take a glucose tolerance test, the typical way that you diagnose it. So what this points to is that it's actually pre-pregnancy insulin resistance or some issue with blood sugar regulation, probably somewhere on the spectrum of pre-diabetes that's going on. And we have simply identified it during pregnancy because we are screening blood sugar in pregnancy where we're not routinely screening everybody's blood sugar levels outside of pregnancy. So a lot of people are walking around with totally out of normal range blood sugar levels. I mean, in the U.S., about half of Americans have some form of either diabetes or prediabetes, and most of them are undiagnosed. So you extrapolate that forward to the female population and to pregnancy, and you kind of have the same scenario yeah. going on. And in PCOS, it's 85% uh, um, have some insulin resistance, pre-diabetes, and most of that is undiagnosed, right? It's, it's yeah. because those, you know, it's not being regularly checked, especially in leaner women where there's still, there's a huge misconception that if you're at a lower, like, to a sort of normal body weight, you can't have insulin resistance, which is just not true at all. Um, mm -hmm. And so therefore about, it's the studies show, I think it's a, between 20 and 50% of people with PCOS will go on to develop gestational diabetes. So it is a, yeah, a huge yeah, factor. Yeah, so, it's a major risk factor. Yeah. And so that really is telling us that, so we've got the, as you said, it's the, it's, it's very unlikely that if you had perfect blood glucose control before pregnancy that you would suddenly develop gestational diabetes, right? It's more that there's been some undiagnosed insulin resistance pre-diabetes going on and then going into pregnancy that just reduces your um, insulin sensitivity even more and therefore we're going to be more likely to test positive. I think that's a really good way of describing it. So you're more likely to test positive during pregnancy um, right. rather than <laughs> develop it. Develop, like, right, right, yeah, right. Yeah, I think it's a really good way of thinking about it. So one of the... Um, major concerns that many people with PCOS have is um, they sort of know what the, you know, recommendations are during how to improve their insulin resistance um, and things like that. And so they've been, you know, done all of this work to improve their insulin before getting pregnant. And then they get pregnant and the first trimester is just a absolute shambles in terms of food. Like, <laughs> 
for want of a better word, it is a train wreck because you have absolutely no control over what your body is wanting you to eat. And it can be really stressful. It can be really stressful. You're like, I've, you know, I've been told that I am at risk of gestational diabetes. I really want to, but my body is saying no to all of the kind of foods that I know are actually really good for my blood sugar. So how much does that first trimester really count or how much do we think if someone has, you know, put a lot of work into improving their insulin before pregnancy, are they going to undo all of the good work in the first trimester if they can only eat white bread with, uh, you know, a slather of butter if they can get it on? Yeah, well, it's not going to undo all of the hard work. I mean, pregnancy is really a situation of best laid plans, right? You're, you have all <laughs> these ideas and every day I'm going to have my arugula salad with uh, grilled salmon and eat so healthy for my baby. And, you know, some of that goes out the window, especially um, early on, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's only, it's, it's a couple months um, just to, you know, give you some reassurance, like your baby early on before the placenta is fully formed. So before the second trimester, it's like, it's relying on your nutrient reserves. It's being fueled by your, your endometrium. Um, like more than your than your uh, your maternal blood supply, um, a lot of things are adapting in your system. Your metabolism metabolism is trying to rev up. Your thyroid is trying to produce more hormones. Your placenta is being formed and starting to ramp up hormone production. Your blood volume is shifting. I mean, the first eight weeks of pregnancy, every single organ system in your baby's body is being formed. All the cells are differentiating and going to the proper place in your baby's body to form organs and organ systems that that form a human being. I mean, it's like miraculous. Your body is really working hard um, in a lot of different ways. So I think we need to give ourselves a heck of a lot of grace. Does the first trimester, you know, impact your risk of gestational diabetes later on? In some ways, yes, because we do have some data suggesting we need, for example, a certain amount of protein to help our pancreas ramp up its insulin-producing cells. And that starts happening. That adaptation starts in the first trimester as your thyroid is ramping up hormone production. Um, you know, that requires protein. There's a need for protein the whole time along. Um, we have data suggesting, you know, too much ultra processed foods um, can can impact the risk of gestational diabetes. Does that count towards women who are previously doing all these wonderful things to improve their insulin resistance pre-pregnancy? We don't have a study that's taken all of that level of detail into consideration. However, um, we can kind of do our best given what our body is able to tolerate at any given time. So it's pretty normal that your body craves more carbohydrates in the first trimester in general. It seems to be there's a reason for it. I don't know precisely the reason why. It could possibly be to take in more potassium. Like Progesterone production is really reliant upon potassium. And most of our, I mean, you get potassium from a lot of different things, but a lot of our concentrated sources are carb sources like, mm. you know, sweet potatoes, potatoes, winter squash, um, fruits, 
Of course, you've got plenty in your protein-rich foods as well. But it's like, I remember really wanting like potatoes and oddly beets and, you know, some of these, these starches. And if we can choose the most nutrient-dense starches that our body will allow us to eat at any given time. So arguably, I would say a potato is a better choice than, than something like white bread. But maybe you can do a sourdough bread and a, a true fermented sourdough bread has a pretty low glycemic index if it's actually a properly fermented sourdough. Um, mm. Maybe you can match those carbohydrates with some protein and fat to like lessen your blood sugar response to them. That does work. Um, just yeah. to throw in a little reassurance, like the first trimester is often a bit of a honeymoon period. Your insulin uh, sensitivity is tends to be higher for a lot of women, not all, um, in the first trimester. So you might actually be able to handle more carbs because your insulin production has ramped up, but your insulin resistance has not yet ramped up in response to like the pregnancy-induced insulin See. resistance. Um, so you might, you might actually be, you know, okay. But if it's to the point where you're, you know, you, you can't touch anything but a carb, otherwise you're going to throw up, by all means, it's better to eat than to not eat. So definitely eat, have those carbs with, if you can get a couple bites in first to kind of quell your stomach, you might be able to kind of sneak in a little bit of protein. And they may be different proteins than what you normally would eat. Sometimes meat and fish is averse, but maybe eggs or cheese, cottage cheese, yogurt, um, beans, nuts, seeds, peanut butter, like maybe those are more tolerable. Maybe a protein powder in the context of a smoothie. And yes, you could choose like lower carb fruits, like berries to make it. Maybe that is a way to sneak in a little bit of protein. Um, I know I'm focusing a lot on protein, but sometimes the nausea can be triggered by like the cyclical nature of our blood sugar swings. And so again, like a little carbs to quell the nausea and then do, do your best to have a couple bites of protein in there. Yeah. Um, and it really and does tend to help. I think you're right to focus on the protein because it's the one thing that most people struggle with. You know, if you're going to mm -hmm. have an aversion to anything, it's generally like you're generally not going to have an aversion to McDonald's fries or like some right. white bread. You're going to be having aversions to eggs and to uh, meat into other kind of protein yeah. sources. So I think that's really And good. you might I also, found also be craving the salt too, just to throw in yeah. one little extra thing. Like your fluid volume is already going up um, and you you need salt and electrolytes along with those. So I mentioned potassium, but like if salty potatoes are calling your name, you probably need the salt and potassium as well, not just the carbs, right? Mm, Plus salt mm, makes everything else taste good. Are you actually salting your food sufficiently? You might be more sensitive to that during pregnancy than outside of pregnancy. And a lot of people way under salt their food. That's why you think restaurant food and processed food taste so good. It's because they're salting it enough. So you could do the same thing with the stuff that you're cooking at home. Make sure it has enough salt. Absolutely. I think that's a really good part of Real Food Pregnancy. And if you haven't read Real Food Pregnancy, grab a copy and read that part on sodium and salt levels. Because I think, again, anyone that's grew up in the 90s would have been fear-mongered into not eating salt. Um, and so a lot of the yes. stuff is a real hangover from our from our childhood of those um, mm -hmm. poor recommendations that we might have carried on through there. So you might be avoiding salt because of a non-evidence-based <laughs> recommendation that is 
quite outdated. So then what about for the people who um, have developed gestational diabetes? And this is many and, and often, you know, like very much I think what I would like to say is through through no fault of their own, you know, would um, may have never been tested for insulin resistance, may have never known that this was a factor. Uh, I know a lot of my patients that have been diagnosed with PCOS just as they're um, starting to try to conceive have never known that they've had it previously They um, and they may never have gone through a uh, insulin test. And so now suddenly they've become pregnant, which is fantastic, um, but now they're landed with a gestational diabetes diagnosis and they're super confused and overwhelmed by all the information. So um, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes is an incredible book. And um, for those that haven't read it, would you be able to just go through the the why maybe the recommendations that they might be getting from their midwife or from their um, gestational diabetes clinic may not be helping them as much as what eating other food could help them? Yes. So... The the thing you want to understand about gestational diabetes, so I defined it as elevated blood sugar in pregnancy originally. There are alternate definitions. Um, one of them is carbohydrate intolerance of pregnancy, which means your body is unable to tolerate a large amount of carbohydrates without experiencing elevated blood sugar. And that is precisely what is going on. <laughs> okay, so that's probably the most accurate definition, because it also points to the obvious. What do we need to be aware of when we're eating for managing our blood sugar levels? Well, we need to be aware of the foods that are spiking our blood sugar levels more than others. And those are our carbohydrate-rich foods. Paradoxically, as you look at our recommendations, they're not particularly low in carbohydrates. Rather, they often have a so-called mandatory minimum level of carbohydrates they want you to eat per day, which we won't get into all the reasons why because it's a very long conversation. However, I can tell you they're not for evidence-based reasons. So what yeah. happens is you have a woman who takes a glucose tolerance test and, and does not get a passing score, right? So she has so-called has gestational diabetes. That test typically involves drinking somewhere from 50 to 75 to 100 grams of glucose in a sitting and then testing your blood sugar afterwards. And you look at the sample meal plan that you may be given or your recommended carb levels, and that often equates to eating about 50 grams or sometimes more of carbohydrates per meal at a single sitting. And then you might be thinking, well, that's a little bit odd because I just took this test where I took 50 or more grams of carbohydrates and my blood sugar was too high. And now my intervention is to consistently eat 50 or more grams of carbohydrates every time I eat. Um, and you would be right to use toddler logic to think that that doesn't make sense because it doesn't make sense. And it often does not work in clinical practice. So just to give you a little context to my journey, I did recommend that when I was early in my practice and it was like, gosh, why are so many of my women having horrible blood sugar levels? I mean, I could put two and two together. I was trying to be a good dietitian and follow the guidelines. Everybody told me yeah. that low carb was unsafe <laughs> and whatever. Um, so that's ultimately what led me to develop my real food approach and write real food for gestational diabetes was to 
write out all the, you know, rationale for my recommendations and give people a little more reassurance that no, it's actually safe to eat a level of carbohydrates that your body can handle. Because guess what? For all of us, our carbohydrate tolerance is different, meaning the amount of carbohydrates that my body can tolerate is different than what your body can tolerate, which is different what Sharon or Sarah or Jenny or whoever can tolerate. We're all individuals. And so sure, we might have some clients who can have 175 grams of carbohydrates and do okay. They probably have a pretty mild case of gestational diabetes if that's the case. But sometimes you need to back that down a little bit and not have so many carbs and instead have our meals be a little more heavy on protein, fats, non-starchy vegetables, anything that's not a carbohydrate, essentially. Um, so we're still getting plenty of energy, plenty of calories, and certainly plenty of nutrients, arguably often more nutrients by eating that mm-hmm. way. We're simply not filling our plates uh, with as many carbohydrates per meal. So that's that. That's sort of the the short and long answer to it. Yeah, absolutely. But then what about people that are being told it's dangerous to go too low carb during pregnancy, which is, I hear a lot as well. And um, what would you say to them? Well, that's the long, that's the long question that has a long answer. So I'm going to do my best to kind of truncate this. There is a chapter in um, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes precisely outlining these things, but the Uh, what I'm going to attempt to be a truncated answer to this is this, this has a couple different um, uh, underpinnings as to why it's stated. One is the concern that you're going to not get enough nutrients, micronutrients for your baby vitamins and minerals. And that's patently false because our carbohydrate foods tend to be our least nutrient dense foods. Um, And certainly I don't advocate for a no carbohydrate diet because I do acknowledge that you do get some essential nutrients in your fruits and vegetables and, you know, um, certainly your whole grains a little bit, your, your legumes, your nuts and seeds, those all, any of your plant foods contain carbohydrates. So we don't want to throw them all under the bus, but we don't need quite the level um, that is in the recommendations and you can have plenty of micronutrients and a nutrient sufficient diet um, if you're slightly lower carb and simply often it's just mm, displacing the highly processed foods which yeah some some more context in the u.s 58 percent of calorie intake among an average american is from ultra processed foods these are things made mostly with refined sugar or white flour or vegetable oil or trans fat or something as the primary ingredient. Okay. So uh, this this should be a good thing. In other words, that we're just placing those with other nutritious foods. The other major consideration is that um, there is a longstanding belief that if you eat too low in carbohydrates, your uh, body will start burning fat for fuel which results in a byproduct of fat metabolism called ketones. And there is a longstanding belief that ketones are unsafe for baby's brain development. Now, the problem with that um, logic, first of all, is that it's based on flawed data. I guess I don't need to go into all the specifics, but it's based on flawed data, most of which is related to a situation where 
the fat burning mode ketosis has been induced by somebody starving themselves. This is called starvation ketosis. If you're starving yourself, you are starving of all essential nutrients. That is obviously completely unsafe for pregnancy. Or it is a situation where you have um, pre-existing diabetes, typically type 1, but sometimes like a type 2 diabetes where a person requires uh, insulin every single day, and you've underdosed your insulin. And if you underdose your insulin, um, your body cannot use your blood sugar for energy. Your, your sugar cannot get access to your cells to be metabolized and taken out of your bloodstream and you start burning your body fat um, for fuel. What is not considered is that a situation where you're eating a nutrient-sufficient diet, calorie-sufficient diet, and you're simply making energy from the dietary fats and proteins that you're consuming um, and you can generate blood glucose from that, you also are going to generate some ketones. But the thing is, your ketone levels don't go anywhere near as high as somebody who's starving or in diabetic ketoacidosis, the, the situation I just described. Um, and there has been absolutely no data, no data to suggest that this has any harm for uh, fetal brain development. In fact, babies get about 30% of their brain energy needs from ketones. They are born in ketosis. They stay in ketosis for at least the first month of life. And some data suggests all the way through at least the first year. The placenta is particularly high in ketones and the cord blood is particularly high in ketones, higher than maternal levels. And all women go into ketosis and in pregnancy, whether they like to or not, it, every single night while you sleep and you're fasting and oftentimes even between meals. So if this whole concept is like harmful to baby's brain development, then human design is seriously flawed because we're all in ketosis in pregnancy. So yeah. that's, uh, that's, a, that's probably as truncated of an answer as I can give you, but I have all the, the data backing up what I'm stating in, um, chapter 11 of Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. Yeah, it's really good. It goes into all the depth there. And I think just when we think about it as well, like, human race wouldn't have survived if we could not be exposed to ketones, right? Like there would have been, we think, you know, thousands of years ago, we wouldn't, we didn't have ex, really access mm -hmm. to food every minute of the day. So mothers would have had periods of fasting between meals that they would have been producing ketones. So And, and what just would happen if you were in a, in a particular um, area of the world where you don't have access to plant foods during the winter? Mm. So what yeah, do you do absolutely. if you're in the Arctic? I mean, people who live natively in the Arctic, such as the Inuit, their diet can be as little as 3% carbohydrates in terms of their percent of calories. Most of their calories are coming from fat and protein. So they're in deep ketosis the whole winter. And I can tell you, having lived up in that part of the world, uh, even your plant foods that you can grow in the summer are not particularly carbohydrate rich. The wild berries that grow up there are not very sweet. Okay. <laughs> so it's like, they're probably in ketosis for um, much of the year, minus some of their uh, bigger harvests, and yet they were able mm. to reproduce. So what's going on there? Um, yeah, and absolutely. just worldwide, our, our, our carbohydrate intake when you look at hunter gatherers is nowhere near where our guidelines is, uh, are set at. So, um, yeah, m many different considerations, uh, ancestrally, physiologically, um, and then even what, what the data is telling us. Yeah. And I think that for those of you that haven't read Real Food for Gestational Diabetes yet, 
Lily has laid out some really good meal examples where you can see that you can get all of your nutrient levels. So if you are being told we need to have as many carbohydrates for micronutrients and fiber, I think fiber is probably the other big one that a lot of people harp on about is if you're not eating grains, you know, we're not eating a high carbohydrate diet, then you're going to be limited in fiber, which is just not true. You can get that from, you know, plenty of the non-starchy vegetables and and other sources as well. So I think that and you'll be able to see in those meal plans that you can get all of the vitamins and minerals and um and macronutrients that you need, including fiber, while also keeping your blood sugar within an optimal level. I think that's the main thing to remember is that yes. the treatment for gestational diabetes really is we want to keep our blood sugar in optimal level. We don't want that baby being exposed to high levels of blood glucose, right? That's what we're trying to avoid in gestational diabetes. So why would we give someone a diet that where the carbohydrate level is much higher than what their insulin can work with and therefore their their blood glucose is going high? And um, and I noticed this I because I uh, I was diagnosed pre-diabetic when I was 25 as um, most people in, in listening to the podcast will know. And so I knew that I would be sort of at risk during this through pregnancy. And so I wore a continuous glucose monitor just once every trimester. So I just for just for data just and just to see how my blood glucose was. And I did notice that that change in the second and third trimester as well. What I could tolerate in the second trimester um, was a lot more than what I could tolerate in the third trimester. The third trimester, I had to, I really had to kind of, um, yeah, adapt a few of the things. Mm. I remember one specific meal was I, or was it wasn't even a meal. I went, I was, we were having friends over, and I had a Heineken Zero and a few crackers and cheese. Um, and my blood glucose was up to nine nanomol per liter, which in um, yeah. which is the kind of New Zealand unit. So well above yeah. the optimal level, which is around about seven um, yeah. that we want to see. So, and that really to me was a really great way of seeing that I needed to now just adjust that slightly, and really a really good way yeah. of seeing. And so, the invention of continuous glucose monitors during pregnancy can be such a helpful thing. I I really I don't recommend using them all the time because I think you can just get a bit. Um, they can just, make just you neurotic. Little... Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Neurotic is a great word. Obsessive. Those sort of, yeah. especially if that you're, you're that way inclined, especially if you're kind of a type A personality and you want everything to be perfect, it can mm-hmm. be more harmful, but it can be sometimes really good just to kind of check that in and say, right, what is my personal problem? As you said before, Lily, yours is different to mine. Mine's different from Emma's yeah. and my team. Um, and that is really, really different um, to what it was as well in the third trimester for me too. So being able to use, utilize that data, use the, the meal plans in real food for gestational diabetes is a great base guideline and then kind of just mo- like modify. Modify up or down. And yeah, that part of the reason for the, um, in real food for gestational diabetes, I the meal plans are provided at three different carbohydrate levels. So it shows you the same meal, but here's at slightly lower carb, here's at slightly higher carb. And so you can see it's a very tiny little adjustment to the portion size. I I did that intentionally, A, to say it's not a universal meal plan that's going to work for everybody, but B, Mm. to show the kind of micro adjustment. Sometimes it's the difference of a quarter cup more or less of fruit at the meal or a quarter cup more or less of rice or something like that. Like it can be a really small amount. but, you know, to your point about the, the CGM, it's interesting you say that guy also wore a CGM once each trimester with my second pregnancy. Although I don't know if in New Zealand you have to jump through hoops of getting it through a, a 
provider prescription in, in the States you do? Yeah, not, you? yeah in the States you do, not in New Zealand. We could just buy it off the shelf. Like, it, okay, you know, well, it that's great. Eighty to a hundred dollars, but I was like, that, and that's also why I only did it once, you know, during pregnancy. I'm not going to expect yes. my patients to be. Oh, so yeah, you're not going to do it all the time. Um, yeah. yeah, so typically, if you're not a science nerd like us, and you want to, you know, do something like that, so do it somewhere in the twenty-four to twenty-eight week mark, which is typically when they do the glucose challenge. If you want to try to opt out of that, and and if you do, by the way, read chapter nine of Real Food for Pregnancy, where I lay out the different options and all the pros and cons. I don't talk about CGM in there. It wasn't as widely available then. I couldn't get one that then myself at the time since I don't have diabetes. But, um, you know, my my experience with the CGM in pregnancy was a little bit different than yours because I found my carb tolerance was just about the same the whole time. So, mm. you know, that just goes to show like it's different for each of us. And I've certainly seen that over the years. I think this is why it's important to when you're getting information about pregnancy and health and diet, whatever, work with a clinician who actually um, has worked with a lot of clients before because they've kind of seen the full gamut, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I've seen the full gamut of women who's like insulin resistance and carb tolerance seems to improve towards the end. And then more of the textbook, it tends to get worse. And then sometimes it gets worse and then it gets better for the last couple of weeks. Like, sometimes it has a little bit of a mind of its own and it doesn't always follow perfectly a little chart of like, okay, when you're at this stage, then it's going to be this level and you'll need to reduce your carbs this amount. It's different for all of us, which is why if there is any identified blood sugar issue, um, you know, you, you want to be checking your blood sugar, whether that doesn't have to be a CGM, but just a finger prick glucometer to see where you're at, to see how your body responds to different foods, to different combinations of foods, even the eating foods in a different order. If you start your meal with carbohydrates versus starting your meal with your proteins or your vegetables, all of this, you know, your activity levels, your stress levels. I mean, so many things end up coming into play. Yeah. Sleep as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why don't just think, okay, well, I've got gestational diabetes. Either I have to follow this plan that I've been given by my midwife or gestational diabetes clinic, you know, that I don't really agree with or that I don't suddenly now suddenly don't have to go and do a ketogenic diet, right? Your likelihood is you're actually somewhere in the middle. And so I think that it is, you know, just if you have been diagnosed with um, gestational diabetes, grab a copy of Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, use the, like the, the plans there. If you can test your own level, see what you can tolerate and then, um, and, and then, you know, and also to what, as you said, what combinations, what, because it might, you might test a, you know, like um, potato one day and your blood glucose spikes, but it might be because you only had three hours sleep the night before, or you were really right. stressed that day or something. So don't just throw the baby out with the bathwater, test again, exactly. try a different combination, try with some butter on that potato or some elderly or something like that. And then, um, and then, you know, find your sweet spot. Yeah, absolutely. You have to tweak and adjust, tweak and adjust. (laughs) It's probably going to continue that way really for the whole pregnancy, by the way, because your your blood sugar insulin levels can shift even week to week. So it's just about kind of staying on top of it and trying to, to temper it as best as you can. And it doesn't have to be perfect. I think people really get sort of caught up that if they have, you know, a single high blood sugar, oh my gosh, something terrible is going to happen. It's really your your average blood sugar and the frequency and severity of those blood sugar spikes that plays a role. So 
like your example of, of the snack and the alcohol-free beer and how it spiked you to a high level, probably at the moment you're going, oh no, I better like, go for a walk. And maybe it is a wise move to move your body a little bit and try to, try to use up that sugar a little bit. But it doesn't um, guarantee that anything uh, negative is going to happen with the pregnancy. I think we also need some reassurance that some aberrations outside of the norm are expected because even people like myself, you know, my insulin resistance is quite low. Blood sugar metabolism is great. Like uh, I still can spike my blood sugar to really high levels if I'm eating things foods or foods in combinations or quantities that don't work for my system. And I, I've written about that in some of my um, articles on my site. If you look up CGM experiment, like oatmeal, for example, and white rice, those tend to be like my kryptonite for my blood sugar. Other people that doesn't raise their blood sugar very much. So we all have our own kryptonite, so to speak. Mm. And so try to look at Ch- that information. Chickpeas is mine. Is what? Strangely. Chickpeas is mine, strangely. Chickpeas. Interesting. Yeah. And you would think with you the think fiber and the fiber and yeah, I know. Yeah. I See, know. isn't that bizarre? We all have our but own thing. So yeah. Like other legumes, like you think, well, how is it any different to like, um, butter beans or anything else in the same, uh, it, yeah, completely different. And it's wow, so I wonder if it's like an immunogenic response. So like if you have, mm-hmm. you know, a slight sensitivity to a food and then you have like an immune response that's stressful and a cortisol surge and then a glucose surge as a result, like who knows all the mechanisms are probably something happening within your system that's behind it. But that, that just goes to show it's like, let's use this information as sort of empowering for our own individual choices. Whoa, that made my blood sugar spike more than I thought. Let's look back and see what I had. It's probably that. Let me test it out another time, maybe in a slightly lower quantity, see if you have the same result. And then you can fine tune. And it's not like the end of the world if you have a couple highs in the fine tuning process. That's part of the process. Yeah. Yeah. My, my one that I was really sad about was, um, cherries. Cause in, so in New Zealand, it's summer now coming into summer. So we always have Christmas is summertime, which I know if you live in the Northern hemisphere, it is bizarre. Trust me. It, and we still keep all the same traditions as you guys as well. So it's like the lights, the tree inside, like, and it's like 30 degrees Celsius. So like, you know, 80, 90 Fahrenheit outside and we're sitting inside <laughs> sweltering in our like Christmas jumpers. And, oh, um, but during that time, like summer fruit, you know, that's that's what we associate with Christmas, like cherries. And for me, that was like another one where I really spiked with like just a handful of cherries. And I got down mm. to I could probably tolerate about two cherries, which was so oh, devastating. What a bummer. <laughs> they are just so delicious over Christmas. But it was also in one of those things that you just take it in your stride and go, okay, that's just my level at the moment. And there's nothing yep. I can really do about it. So let's yep. just kind of like modify, modify what I have them with. Modify the amount I have, and um, and it is mm-hmm. so exactly. So thank you so much, Lily. I know that um, it has been just a pleasure talking with you, and I know that uh, all of our people with BCS are going to get so much knowledge and information from this, both in a really, really good manner that it is not fear mongering. It is really realistic and just hey, this is what's going on, and that's why I really love both real food for pregnancy and real food for gestational diabetes because it gives us all the information we need, but not overloaded and also in a way that we can really implement that into our life and with the amazing um, meal plan examples and things like that. So if you have, if you are pregnant or if you have developed gestational 
gestational diabetes, then those are really good resources. I will link them in the show notes below, but you can get them from all Amazons in Kindle and um, hard copy as well. Um, and also to that you, um, did you do an audiobook version of? I did an audiobook version of Real Food for Pregnancy. I did not do yeah. an audiobook version of the gestational diabetes one. Yeah. So I real I'll wait pregnancy. until, um, uh, you know, version two, new, the second edition and probably do an audiobook for the gestational diabetes one then. Yes. We both know how painful the audiobook recording process is. <laughs> oh, it is. Oh, it is. It is. It is long. Yeah, with Real Food for Pregnancy, I was in the recording studio for, I think it ended up being four and a half days. And those are like full eight hour days. And you think, oh, I talk all the time. It's fine. But when you, it's different when you're reading a book. So um, I guess I can understand why people hire it out to a professional. I'm not a professional, you know, voice artist or whatever, but you start learning your weird pronunciation things you you learn that you somehow can't read like you just can't read your own book that you wrote I mean stumbling over words and re-recording I was I was lucky to do it at a friend's uh recording studio who was very patient with me and we were we were on it to just re-record right in the moment there and get it right but it's it's a lot of work for an audiobook so I'm like "Ah, I think I'll wait for a second edition for the other one yeah, 100%. I couldn't say sperm. I would keep saying smerm. And like it was, and given my books about getting pregnant with PCOS, it's a pretty critical word to be able to say. You know, just the amount of times we had to rec- record that one word or the, oh my gosh, it was, yeah, it is a huge amount of work. So, yeah, yeah. I was so a little thank bit, you for doing uh, Yeah, I was a little bit disappointed that I had put in, you know, the full word for PFOA and the toxin section perfluorooctanoic acid it was like how many times can i say that word and mess it up you know it's uh it's a test it's a test yeah amazing oh well we are looking have you got a any plans for a next edition of real food gestational diabetes is this something that's in the works or just a thought at the moment uh, it is a thought at the moment. I am. Uh, I haven't announced it yet, so I won't provide a whole lot of details, but I'm working on a third book and I'm uh, going to get that one out before I go back and, and go back to do second editions of the other ones. It's a work in progress, you know, two kids at home and I work part time. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a long process. Amazing. Oh, well, we're so looking forward to hearing your announcement about that and I'll make sure to share it with everybody here when that is out. So thank you so much, Lily. Amazing talking to you and have a lovely rest of your evening. Likewise. Thank you. So I hope that you got a lot out of that and really took away the fact that the guidelines that you might have been given are giving you the same amount of carbohydrate as the gestational diabetes test in every meal and just how absurd that is when you saw what that did to your blood glucose levels. And instead, thinking about managing gestational diabetes is really about keeping your blood glucose optimal and in the optimal range. And that might mean a much lower carbohydrate dose for you, but it often means you can still have some carbohydrate. It just might be a different type of carbohydrate, or it might be um, pairing it with some proteins or fats or just eating it at a different time um, with, you know, like eating your vegetables and your protein first and then having your carbohydrate as well. So 
just that there is lots of different options for you and that Real Food for Gestational Diabetes would be a brilliant resource for you. I've also popped in, Lily's got some really great articles, blog posts that she has created on this, her own continuous glucose experiment that you can see just kind of like what different foods she did. She did a really good one on breakfast, oatmeal versus a different, and just you can see what oatmeal did to her. Um, and also too, she has some other um, resources there for gestational diabetes as well. So if you're interested, then those are all in the show notes below. So thanks so much for tuning in and we will see you next time. Now stand by for our disclaimer. The information contained in this podcast has been prepared for the purpose of providing information, including about the PCOS nutritionist products and services, and is designed to support clients' overall wellness. It is not intended to provide medical advice or designed to rectify, treat, or cure any specific medical conditions or diseases. Nothing stated or shared in our podcast is intended to be and must not be taken to be medical advice. Please seek the advice of professionals as appropriate regarding the evaluation of any specific information, opinion, advice or content contained in our podcast.